friend of mine uh, who uh, shared my love of comics. I had no expectation I was ever going to work in them, but a friend of mine who shared my love of comics said to me one day, well, you like comics. Why don't you come meet this publisher I know in Toronto? Um, it was a comic book company called Vortex Comics in the 80s, and they were a little comic book company that had an office about 200 yards from my apartment. So it wasn't much of a commute to walk up there one day and just sort of talk to this guy. And he said, well, you know, you want to write a story for our next issue and uh, we can't pay you anything, but it would just be a lark and it was a fun thing to do. And after I wrote and drew the first story, he offered me my own series. And after the fourth issue of my own series, I was nominated for a Kirby Award. So that's not a particularly reproducible way to get in. Because uh, once I got the nomination for the Kirby Award, the phone started ringing and it was like, would you like to come? I think the first job I got professionally was working on a, an issue of Miracle Man for uh, Eclipse. And uh, they said, would you like to come work on an issue of Alan Moore's Miracle Man? And I believe my tongue fell out. And that's how I got started. Uh, I cheated. I, I sort of became a writer after being an artist in the business for about 20 years. Um, I, always, I always wrote and drew my own books, but uh, the books I tended to write tended to be a little more cultish and not very popular. And I had this alter ego as an artist that was drawing mainstream comic books. And I think I, I lucked out in that a lot of the editors that hired me to be a writer were fans of my weirder comic books like The Reg and The Coffin that I'd done. And as they came of age as editors, they thought of hiring me as a writer as well. So uh, I've been lucky to have two careers in this business. All right. How did you break in, Andrew? I'm still working on it. <laughs> um, we only have 45 minutes, so rather than listen to answers to the questions that I have, I'm going to throw it open to the questions that you have. Unless they don't have any in which case you get to see answers to the questions you have. David, uh, with your work on Dark Tower, or, and similar works, what are the challenges of reproducing an existing work in another medium to comic book in comparison to just working in comic books? Okay. Uh, everybody hear that? and how to reconceptualize things to be visual. That is all done by a writer named Robin Firth, who is at this point probably the foremost authority on, um, on Stephen King's Midworld. I mean, she probably at this point knows more than Steve does about how it all fits together. So she is the one who actually sits down and goes through the books and the existing material and the material that doesn't exist, which she then crafts scenes to put together, and breaks down the story. Okay? Then the artist takes her story and breaks it down visually. Then it's my job to actually take the whole thing and pull it together with words. And the challenges that that involves are, there's a number of them. I mean, first off, um, I, particularly when we were starting out, uh, the artist who, who, was, who was doing the book, Jay Lee, terrific artist, okay? Beautiful, beautiful art, not always 
the, the most reliable when it comes to sheer storytelling. The visuals look fantastic, the storytelling is problematic, especially because Robin was inexperienced with doing comics. So, you've got a 50-50 storyteller and an inexperienced comic plotter. And as a result, visually, the book didn't hold together. Um, there was no, there, uh, the transitions from place to place didn't hold together, you know, and, and sometimes, particularly if deadlines were looming on him, Jay would cut corners. Um, for instance, you know, I say there's no respect to Jay, but for instance, Robin would write huge double page spread in which the armies of darkness are charging from the right and Roland and all of the gunslingers of Gilead are coming from the other side. Massive battle sequence, bullets flying, you know, she describes this in unbelievable detail. And Jay, because he's running behind, will draw a double page splash of a guy holding a gun. Now, I don't mean you even see the guy, I mean, this is, can I have a piece of paper for a second? This is the page. Okay? This is a big gun, right? And if you're lucky, there's a bullet coming out. And I'm looking at it going... <laughs> so, what I decided to do, and you know, there were, it's, that's just one of the more prominent ones, but there would be things like that where she would describe things in unbelievable detail and she would go, oh, that's not happening. And what I decided to do to try and cover a myriad of problems was I developed a narrator, a narrator character who was be unseen throughout the entire book. What I did was I cribbed the sort of patois and dialogue style that King developed for the fourth book called Wolves of the Column. He had these kind of rustic type of cowboys who talked like they came wandering in at a blazing saddles, basically. And I envisioned the notion of, you know, guys on a trail somewhere, right? And this old guy, you know, and they're sitting there and they're trading stories. And someone brings up Roland, and I just pictured that there's one guy that's the oldest guy who's going, ah! Roland! Roland DeShane! Oh yeah, I know Roland! Oh, you young punks! Get around, youngsters! Let me tell you about Roland DeShane. The man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. You know, and that's... I created this unseen narrator who would be able to hold to be the consistent voice for the entire series, that he would always be there because I knew we were going to be changing artists, and we would have all different artists of all different storytelling capabilities, and I knew that Robin was going to learn as she went, but this would put me slightly, which she did, by the way, and this would put us ahead of the learning curve. So that was my, and what I did was I pulled a lot of that style from Wolves of the Kala. It also enabled me to incorporate some of, the, some of Steve's prose, and what I would do is I would just rewrote, I would reword the prose ever so slightly so that I could adapt it in that voice. Because my reasoning was that Stephen King fans expect a lot of words. You know? So I tend to overwrite Dark Tower in order to accommodate the Stephen King fans because they're used to reading books this thick. If they're reading Stephen King's Dark Tower, they can read it in two minutes flat. They're going to feel dissatisfied. They're not going to make happy sounds like that. 
and so that that was that was the approach that I took to it in order to make it work as a comic book. And it worked for some people. Some readers complained about the unseen narrator for some damn reason. And the things that broke me up the most were the people who, who wrote reviews who said that I had no ear for Stephen King's writing at all. And inevitably, when they would pull examples of my supposed tin ear for Stephen King, they would be pulling stuff that was almost word for word right out of one of the King novels. <laughs> so, you know, go figure. But does that answer, does that basically answer your question? Yes, okay. Anybody else? Yes, Tom Brevoort's Evil Twin. Speak to us. <laughs> any tips? Oh, yeah. uh, do you have any tips for writing uh, pitches to editors? Keep it. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the uh, one of the tricks that's been used in both our business and in the television business is um, when you are doing a pitch, do not fill up a page with information. You should probably write no more than 100 words per page and leave at the bottom two-thirds of it blank. Even if you have a, something you know, uh, that needs 300 words to express it, spend three pages to do it. And it's a, it's a weird psychological trick. It means you're turning the pages quickly. It feels like it's a quick read. It's a stupid trick, but it actually does work. And Yeah, it's most stupid tricks too. And even though the editor's aware of it, that you're pulling this trick on him, he's still going to go the opposite way. If you hand him something that's 450 words per page, he's going to have this realization that he's spending a lot of time on this page. And that sense of flipping the pages quickly is a nice thing to do. The other thing is, and this is hateful but true, uh, editors want to know what you're pitching them is like something else that has been successful. And the, the best way to pitch an editor is to say it's a little bit like thing A that succeeded and a little bit like thing B that succeeded. And the thing that makes it new is that it's this amalgam of the two ideas. And rather famously, uh, this is getting back a few years, but there's a, a famous story that runs through uh, Hollywood that the shortest pitch in the history of, of television was seven letters long. And it was the pitch for the television show Miami Vice. And the pitch was MTV Cops. And it's a very famous story. Because once you hear MTV Cops, well, MTV is successful. Cops are successful. It's like a peanut butter cup. And that's what editors are looking for. They don't want you to say, it's a little bit like this really obscure French film from 1957 and a teeny bit like my grandmother's backyard because they're going to have no sense of why there's an audience out there for that but if you say to them it's a little bit like Star Wars and a little bit like Blade Runner they get an erection <laughs> I, I think if you're pitching a comic book specifically especially if you're pitching a publisher rather than an editor of an existing property uh, nothing works as well as just doing it uh, if you're pitching a comic book uh, do the comic, you know, show them the art. Um, not only does it, not only is it a proof of concept, it's a proof of your fortitude that you actually saw that through to, to make at least part of a comic book. Because uh, publishers hear a million, well not a million, they hear thousands of great ideas a year, but they don't see them. So if you can show them the proof of your of your project, uh, that goes a long way. If I may put that into a pithy line, I, always, uh, I have students and they always ask me a similar question. I always say to them, never tell anyone what you're going to do. Show them what you did. 
because everybody is about to do something. I'm about to make a million dollars and conquer the world, but I haven't done it. So it, everyone can tell you what they're going to do, but if you actually say, here is what I did, it is a much more concrete proof that you can do it again. Yeah. And, and now, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that that's a place where writers are kind of behind the eight ball because if you're strictly a writer, it's, you can't necessarily generate a comic book all by yourself. So it, it's important to find a collaborator or if you are a writer and an artist to do it all yourself. Yeah, but the, the, the wonderful thing now is that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, you're in the exact same predicament, you have a real hardship. Nowadays, there are so many people who are aspiring artists who want to break in. Probably in this room. Yeah, that all you have to do is go, I mean, the internet is for porn, but aside from that, um, there are so many ways to get word out that you're looking for a collaborator and finding other people who are interested in breaking in and putting together material that you can then put out onto the internet. If you're, if you're a writer and you don't know a collaborator to approach from your town, DeviantArt.com is the spot to go. exactly where I was going. Because they're just hungry to meet a writer at DeviantArt.com. Or you could go out those doors and take a left. Yeah. There'd be a lot of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying. You come from Cam Loops and you yeah. don't have the chance to you know, be in a convention. Right. But yeah, that's yeah, I, was, I was about to go there with DeviantArt. Yeah, DeviantArt's that's, a big resource. An incredible, incredible thing. It's a wonderful resource because you'll find a lot of really highly professional skilled people there who don't have a gig. To Look. say nothing of the fact that that makes it much easier to approach uh, editors because you can say, if you're interested in seeing my work, it's on this website. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they can go and they can go check it out if they are so inclined. You no longer have to put together packages of your material and, and send it off and then have it sit in the mailbox. I mean, every, you know, the world is much closer because of the internet. And uh, you know, why not take advantage of it if what you want to try and do is break in? I will warn you, though, that uh, I think scouting talent is probably the easiest job in this business. Scouting talent that we produce is the hardest. Yeah. And, and when looking for talent, there's something uh, Peter and I were mentioning yesterday. When looking for talent on DeviantArt.com, if you're a young writer who's looking for a collaborator, do not become swayed by beautiful pinup art. Yeah. Because uh, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, of guys out there who do this fantastic shot of Wolverine putting his claws through a robot, but can't draw a picture of two people having a sandwich over a table. And the thing I always advise artists, if there's those in the room, when you're putting together your portfolio to show editors, show people getting out of cars, eating, walking down the street, doing mundane things. Because although out of every 20-page comic, 17 pages will be Galactus fighting Fin Fan Fu, but there's going to be three pages where someone's on the phone or someone's trying to get earwax out of their ear. And you have to be able to draw the mundane and maintain the level of quality for that. So when you're looking for creators, don't look at people who just specifically do pinups. Look for people who do continuity pages. Yes. Next question. What would you say is the most important non-dialogue skill to have for writing comics? The most important, the most important non-dialogue skill? A fundamental concept of how plots are put together. The concept of act one, act two, act three, the concept of turning points. I mean. There is a fundamental structure that many books, many movies, many television programs follow. And if you're actually aware of the writing of, of, of the skeleton of it, you'll actually be able to see it. 
to the point of once I was I was going on a on a trip promoting the Hulk with Dale Keown, and we were watching this this movie called Tango and Cash. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And I was and while we're watching it, watching it in a hotel room, I was talking about plot structure with Dale, and I said. I said, okay, how long is this movie? Because they're watching the movie, and he checks the running time. There's something like 95 minutes. And I said, okay, where are we in the movie? And I said, in 15 minutes, his sister is going to be kidnapped by the bad guy and held for ransom. And, and held as a, as a piece to try and that they're going to kill her unless he comes to this time and this place. And right on schedule. That's what happened. Now, if you do it with absolutely no art and no cleverness to it, it's going to be just that predictable. So you want to try and invert the, you know, you want to try and invert things whenever possible. But to put it, let's put it in artistic terms, okay? Jack Kirby is, was renowned for artwork that was incredibly exaggerated, okay? But Kirby knew basic human anatomy cold. No, he really did. You look, particular, look at the older stuff. He didn't know knees. That's true. He was weak on knees. He was 50-50 he was on knees. But he basically knew human anatomy. And as he exaggerated and did more and more with it, there was still the fundamental foundation was there. So that's what you want to do. You want to know the basic skeleton. You want to know the basic foundation so that when you come up with your own twists and turns and inversions, you'll know where you started so that you can actually play to the audience's expectations and then knock the props out from under them. I did that in Captain Marvel. I was doing the six-part story, and in part five, I have a character named um, Entropy, this cosmic character who wants to destroy the universe. And he says to Captain Marvel, and I want your help destroying the universe. And Captain Marvel says, Okay, I'm going to help you destroy the universe. And that's the end of part five. And it's dun dun dun, oh my god. And now the audience is going to be expecting that issue six is going to be this cosmic level battle to destroy the universe. No. Issue six starts with Captain Marvel and Entropy standing against the white background going, Okay, we destroyed the universe. <laughs> now what? And I just, I destroyed the universe between issues. And people who read it, they're going, what? What, because they expected certain tropes that I then didn't go for. Because that's not what the story was about. The story wasn't about destruction, the story was about creation. And so the sixth issue involves entropy coming to the realization that destruction means nothing unless you have a plan for something else. And he winds up recreating the universe exactly the way that it was before. Except there were small differences because there were cracks, which is my way of explaining the props and Marvel continuity problems that had cropped up. Um, but, you know, you, you want to try and set people up for certain things so that you can then send them off in a different direction. But you've got to know the actual things to start. Um, I, I have a method that I use that um, I don't know that many other writers use it, but it's incredibly valuable to me. I make what are called story maps before I write a single word of dialogue, before I actually write it. 
I, I write any scenes. And what I do is I have these sheets of paper with little uh, squares on them, or oblong squares, this, this, the shape of a comic page. And, you know, back when Marvel used to have 22 pages, there were 22, we've knocked two of them out now. But what you do is you write a single sentence for what will happen on every page before you begin writing any of the scenes or any of the dialogue. So that by the time you were creating scene one, you already know every twist and turn in the plot, every surprise appearance, every moment of it, so that you can add the foreshadowing, you can add the, uh, uh, the build. You know what's on page 22, even if you haven't written it yet, when you're writing page one. And to me, that solves the problem of A, you never have to edit down from a script that's too long. And two, it creates this sense that you always know where you're going, always. That you work out all the, what happens on every page. And once you've decided upon it, live with it like it's carved in stone. And, and, and treat page 16 as always going to be the page in which that's when he slips in the shower and bangs his head. So that when you're writing page two, you know that there's a scene in the shower coming up where he's going to slip and bang his head and you can appropriately build to that and foreshadow. Because having that map, and also because it's all on one piece of paper, you can amend it in horse trade scenes as you're doing it because the entire story is right there in front of you on one piece of paper, just like if you had a map, you could see the whole country at one time. That's what, to me, is the simplest solution. I can create a story map in about eight hours, and that is most of what you need to do beyond creating the scene work and creating the visuals and the dialogue. And, you know, the, the actual plot of the story map, uh, or the, the character piece, or the tale, or any one of the other structures of story, I just want to make this point, plot is only one-fifth of the kind of stories you could write. There's other kinds of oh, stories. Oh, yeah, sure, he just asked for one thing. Yeah, and, and that once you've decided your structure, if it's tale, character, piece, that kind of thing, that you have all of it laid out in a very specific a floor plan, like a blueprint for a house. You wouldn't build a house by going, well, let's start with this nail and that piece of wood, as some writers often do. You have to know what it's going to look like finished before you actually start constructing it. Uh, yeah, and I'd say another sort of underreported aspect of writing comic books is that you need to know how to converse with your artist. Uh, you're not writing for a reader. Uh, you're not presenting a, a piece of fiction. You're writing a letter to somebody that you're collaborating with. So you need to be able to communicate what you want to get across to them in a way that is clear and concise and has a lot of information to it, but doesn't run them over. You know, gives them a little room to contribute to the story. Google and, image is your friend. Yes, yeah, and you'll have to include a lot of re reference as well. But I, it, it's important to find that sort of conversational tone that you want to have with your artist. And uh, remember, again, you're writing a letter to your artist more than you're writing a piece of finished fiction that you're going to present to a reader. Actually, I want to add one thing to that, if I may. When you're a writer, one of the things that happens is a lot of writers write what a single panel is, what they believe is about five or six seconds of story. And you'll find that sometimes what they write is actually two or three panels worth of information. And what I often suggest to young writers is that they draw the story themselves before they actually type it up as descriptions. Now, it doesn't matter if you draw the world's worst stick figures and the most completely incoherent images, because the only person that's ever going to see them is you. But it allows you to know what is possible inside one panel. I'll give you a beautiful example of this. I worked on a comic as an illustrator a number of years ago that was written by somebody who clearly didn't understand comics, because the panel description for page one, panel one, was this. We are looking at a traffic jam in New York City. Cars are backed up for blocks in all directions. Amongst these cars is a limousine. On the back of the limousine is a bumper sticker that says, my other car is also a limousine. And the driver is wearing a lapel pin that says, ask me about my tax bracket. 
Tell me how you can see a traffic jam, a bumper sticker, and the lapel pin of the driver in one pan. You cannot. But if you were writing that for television, bang, 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 you can cut between three shots rather quickly. And it might only take you five seconds to get to get past that amount of information. But visually in a comic panel, it's not possible. So my suggestion is to doodle it out yourself. No matter how badly you draw it, you are at least able to see what is possible to go inside of the panel. And type up what you can look at, not what you can imagine. Okay. Absolutely. Um, you're, you're going to see this all the time. That our artists say it all the time, editors say it all the time, the novice writers who try to put more than one thought into a panel. I mean, the only the only way that someone could do, you know, what, what you asked for, is to do have one panel, but then have like little insert shots, which is like, which is still going to be multiple panels. You know, there's there's really there's really absolutely no way to do it. Um, I would also, you know, that, that yeah, you just that's yeah, that's really really good to to point that out. Describe what you can see. So you can see. You can imagine because you can imagine. As Angela said, I can imagine, imagine quite a lot. Yeah. So. Draw the stick figure version because that way you'll know what the picture needs. Uh, I, I remember once one of my students, I, I teach a comic book course in Toronto, and one of my students had drawn up a picture of what they wanted the, the, the final panel to be, and it was happening at a racing uh, track, and it was cars on the racetrack, and I said, well, why didn't you draw the audience? That in your panel, you should probably be able to see them. And he said, oh, I, I was just going to add that in the typing. And I went, no, no, because if you don't add the audience, you don't realize it also requires you to add the lighting for the, for the stadium or how much of it you can see. So draw it as badly as you can visualize. It does not matter. You're just creating something that's a checklist of what is available to be drawn in that panel. In fact, that's the way I work a lot. Uh, I present the artist with a script, and I also present them with a little dummy thumbnail version of the comic book that I've done with and also, be, as, be very clear in your instructions. I'll give you an example. I did, I did a, a Dread Star limited series. And on the first page, I said, um, a, I started with, a, I said, a series, I said, we start with a series of panels, essentially a helicopter shot of an alien world as we draw closer and closer to its surface. And the artist gave me back a splash page that had a series of panels and a helicopter <laughs> smack in the middle, shooting at the panel borders. And I had forgotten what I wrote in the script. And I looked at it going, what is it? And it was a really nice helicopter. <laughs> doing on my alien world. And I went back to my script and I went, oh, son. <laughs> Another one was when I did the Atlant I did the, uh, a book called The Atlantis Chronicles, which was done by a wonderful artist who spoke zero English. Esteban Maroto. The scripts were being translated by his daughter for him. So I decided in this particular uh, telling that Atlantis would be sunk by a meteor, which is actually 30 the number of Atlantean uh, fans have, that Atlantis starts out on the surface, and then in the course of the series, the course of the uh, first issue, a meteor is getting progressively closer and closer, right? So we get to around page 31, because it's like a 48 page book, and I wrote panel one, for the, I said the, the I said uh, exterior day. The the meteor has now drawn even closer. 
For the first time, we can clearly see the face of the meteor, its craggy surface and exterior. We get back the pages, and there is a death's head skull, a face carved into the meteor. And as it gets closer, it becomes more and more evident it's a death's head skull. And Bob Greenberg, who's the editor, said, do you want me to have the art, do you want me to have art corrections? Fix it. And I looked at it, and I said, you know, I kind of like it. I said, I know that it's absurd, but I like the symbolism. Because if a regular old meteor is coming your way, you hope that maybe you're going to survive this. If it's got a death's head skull, you're getting your ticket punched. Don't start reading any continued stories. Kiss yourselves goodbye. You're going down, in this case, literally. Um, so we kept it in there. And later, when I was writing Aquaman, I actually developed a whole storyline with the meteor explain why it had a death's head skull in it. So you never know what's going to happen. I was talking about Stark Bay helicopter. <laughs> shot it out! <laughs> I don't know why, but I feel prompted to suddenly tell everybody this deep, dark secret. Uh, uh, John Romita Jr. has one stipulation if you work with him as a script writer. is no helicopters in his stories. I don't know why. Really? Yeah, he doesn't. He hates drawing them, but I don't know why. And I just think that's the funniest thing. If you need a helicopter in your story, you're screwed. <laughs>